I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apets. And I'm Jill Duggan. And this is Join the Dots. I'm an environmental economist. Sabina is an environmental scientist. Jill is an expert in climate and energy policy. We've spent our careers giving advice about the environment, and we know choices are never straightforward. Here in each show, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet, and our planet. We've been putting this podcast together, then COVID-19 came along. Expect to see our first series pop up soon, but for now, there's one big issue we really felt we needed to address amidst this pandemic. Today's episode is, like everything else you're listening to at the moment, recorded remotely with us all talking to each other via Zoom. We're looking today at this global pandemic and the challenges that brings to us and how do we keep ourselves safe in a sustainable way. There's been 17 million confirmed cases and those are the cases that have been tested. We're moving towards three quarters of a million confirmed deaths due to COVID globally. The true figure is probably much higher as we know. And this is generating huge worry about the environmental impacts of some of the products that we use to keep ourselves safe and also huge amounts of confusion. We have watched government advice change from day to day and yet always they're telling us that they're relying on the scientific evidence. Countries interpret that evidence differently to give different advice to their citizens. So this episode looks at not whether you should wear a mask on public transport or in shops, we know that you should. And it's looking at the things that we can do to protect ourselves, and in particular, the PPE, the visors, the masks and the gloves. How can we use them to give ourselves the most protection whilst doing the minimal damage to the environment? I want to turn to Sabina to ask, firstly, what we know about the virus, how it's transmitted, and what that means for how we should start protecting ourselves. Thanks, Jill. Um we can distill a few things in the context of personal protection equipment by thinking about how the virus is transmitted. And we find that it's transmitted through particles and aerosols in the air and contact, and then us touching our face. And so the PPE we use needs to address those two things. So what does that mean? Is a mask or a visor better for protecting ourselves? Well, as we understand it now, masks protect by stopping the droplets that come from our mouth when we speak, sing, cough, sneeze. And therefore, masks protect others by stopping those droplets from us, and they protect us to a slightly lesser extent by stopping the droplets from reaching our face. There's less research on visors, but the current evidence suggests they're less effective for stopping those droplets um, than our masks. On the other hand, there's growing evidence that visors and now goggles will protect your eyes from droplets. So if I'm going to the supermarket, Sabina, is a mask sufficient? Sufficient or not, you have to do it. (laughs) Regulation. At a minimum, some sort of mask is important. I would interpret from the evidence that it's not mask or 
visor. If you're going to wear a visor or goggles, that's an additional protection. But there's growing evidence that when you have both, you are more protected. The mask you're wearing to protect others as much as or more than to protect yourself. The visor and goggles are protecting you and not others. Following on from that, is there any material difference, if you'll excuse the pun, between disposable masks and reusable? I think somebody has estimated that if everybody in the UK wore a single-use mask every day for the year, it would create 124,000 tonnes of plastic waste. So from that point of view, I'm guessing that reusable every time, but is it giving us the same level of protection? The devil is in the details, but there's strong evidence that disposable masks are no more effective than reusable, and they're sometimes less effective. And does that matter, you know, if I make my own masks, or in my case, actually get a friend or relative to make them for me, are they going to be as good as a shop-bought reusable mask? Again, it depends. Studies have showed that if you're making them following the extensive guidance available on the internet with multiple layers or possibly an insert for a filter, then they're going to be just as good as the ones you can buy. On the other hand, if you're me and you can't sew to save your life, I think you're better off buying something from somebody that can. But I wanted to barge in here because How did we even come to know about disposable masks? We witnessed them before COVID only in medical circumstances, right? And I think here we're talking about personal protection for us, the ordinary folk in everyday life and conditions. And disposable masks are more about medical contexts, clinics, hospitals, where there are many, many viruses, causes of disease, There are very vulnerable people and the exposure to these risks is very high. Whereas we're talking about using a a reusable mask um, when we're out and about still with physical distance for short amounts of time in hopefully well-ventilated places. I think it's important to remember all our conversation and our understanding and interpretation of evidence is for general use. It's not in the medical clinical context. I imagine that some people are using disposable masks because they're worried about what happens when you finish with your mask. You know, you have to be so careful not to touch it and then what do you do with it afterwards? And then how do you know when it's no longer infected? If you're out for a whole day and you're maybe using two or three masks, how do you look after the masks? How do we wash them? All of that sort of thing. Is there any advice, Sabina, that you can give us about what we should be doing with reusable masks. One of the big concerns about the general untrained public wearing masks is that it can, if you're not careful, increase the risk of the other pathway that we're currently concerned about, which is touching a contaminated surface and then touching our faces. And as I think the whole world has learned in the last couple of months, we touch our faces a lot. The way you handle a mask, you need to ensure you're not touching your face much. And so whatever strategy you plan will also depend on the environment you're in. Now I stick my mask in my pocket and I don't worry about it. I don't treat it, treat it like hazardous material, but I am not going into high 
density public environments. I understand from friends who are making material for the NHS that nurses are getting kit bags where they're putting their masks and their work clothes to carry home. I know there is advice for people that go out in high-risk environments and are returning to their presumably clean home to have a container to put your outside clothing in before you go inside that you're not transferring. For ordinary non-medical folk who are not going into hospitals, if we're traveling on public transport or going to the supermarket and we put our mask on for that purpose, is it okay to put it in our pocket at the end of it and put some hand gel on maybe at that point, just to make sure that we cleaned our hands? Is that sufficient? I mean, I'm not asking you for a definitive answer, but does that seem like a sensible and common sense approach? If you remove the mask with clean hands and you do not put it on a surface like your shopping cart, I would assume that it would be safe to stick it in your pocket. But you need to think about the things you have come in contact with. I think all of us in public spaces are now not only trying not to touch our face as much, but trying not to touch other things. So don't don't touch the middle of the mask, surely, when you're touching it. Touch it from the, the ear bits. You're on Zoom. They can't see you on the podcast, <laughs> Jill. is now gingerly removing an invisible mask from behind <laughs> our ears <laughs> and folding it. <laughs> in an invisible pocket without touching the middle, which is... Uh, you're very I, safe. Yeah. You're very safe right now. <laughs> And I think that brings us on to whether, you know, if we're taking off our invisible mask gingerly, should we be gloved up in order to do that? Or is hand gel more effective? Both the research and my experience suggest that the general public should not be wearing gloves in their day-to-day activities for a number of reasons. One, when we generally wear gloves in a non-medical environment, we're concerned with protecting our hands from something like bleach or something that can be directly damaging to our skin. We're concerned now about our hands as a vector to transfer virus to our faces. Gloves don't protect you from that. When you put on gloves, the first time you touch something, they are no longer useful for that. People are less likely to wash their hands as often, and they have a false sense of security. So you're generating a lot of plastic without any benefit. On the other hand, if you're caring for a sick person or cleaning with caustic chemicals, you should wear gloves and then remove or dispose of them. They do not recommend hand gel on gloves, so you're better off being careful what you touch, and cleaning your hands often. Which brings us on to the next point, really, is that a few months ago, we were being told that masks were ineffective and that people didn't need to wear them in public. And now the advice has changed enormously, first to public transport, then to shops. And now the advice seems to be much stronger. And I'm presuming that the science, therefore, seems to be much stronger about the importance of wearing masks How do people have confidence in this advice when it's constantly changing? Yeah, I want to come in in support of my natural scientist friend, Sabida, here. The thing is that when we're exposed to scientific evidence, it's usually the output of decades of work. And we read it if a journalist picked it up or we watch a documentary about it or whatever. 
And by that time, there's consensus built in the scientific community because they had time to try and test different theories, gather evidence, then disagree a lot. um, And then finally, when they agree, they publish. That's not the times we're living in now. And as you've heard it many times back in December, January, nobody knew about this. Actually, they've published in medical journals incredibly fast whatever they could gather since Wuhan in China. And of course, as they find new evidence and they're changing their theories, as they change their theories, they find new evidence and they're trying to communicate it at the same time as discovering new things. Of course, it's not just these medical, environmental, positive sciences. You know, sociology is a science. Economic is a science. Science is a method of exploring unknown things. It's not only the medical evidence that's changing, but our understanding of how people react to the advice that they're giving. So there's lots of psychology that we don't know about and behaviours we don't know about, and we're all learning. Everybody responds to this quite differently. I mean, all of us will have had experience of being pushed past by some jogger in the park, usually, I hate to say this, a young man, thinking that they were kind of immune to this. I, I think, again, we're seeing that people react very differently to the information that they get. And it's really difficult if you're a concerned citizen who wants to do the right thing and this evidence and advice is shifting constantly. How do we make decisions? Let me point out something that is implicit in our discussion and maybe we need to spell out. There are two types of decisions that we're talking about here. One is the personal choices we make when we decide whether to wear PPE regardless of advice and which PPE to wear. There's also policy that government makes when they tell us what we should do, hopefully informed by science. It's important to remember that scientists don't make policy. Scientists advise, given the evidence, what the probable consequences of different choices are. Policymakers then balance that with what is important to them and rules and objectives and make policy. But how does a scientist think about a problem like this? How does a scientist explain risks and advice on uh, how to behave? Okay, I'm an environmental scientist and often we're looking at the risks of contaminants and how we manage them. And to frame those questions, we often apply a source pathway receptor framework. You can have things that are dangerous like a poison, but they don't pose a risk unless something is actually poisoned. So the source pathway receptor framework tells us for something to be a risk, you have to have a source, in this case, a person sick with COVID that is potentially spreading the virus. You have a pathway, which is either, as we've said, aerosols or airborne particles or droplets that you touch and lift to your face. And you have a receptor, a person that will get the virus. Now, to contain risk, we can address the source. We can try to isolate people with COVID if we know they're ill, or we can control the pathway. This is what we do with PPE. We try to stop or interrupt the pathway between a sick person and a well person, or we can address the receptor. We can use vaccines or we can treat an ill person. Now, you can develop a strategy that tries to address all three of those. None of them are perfect. 
And therefore, you're going to have a mix. Right now, we're talking about pathway control. I'm wondering, Sabina, whether this is something that we can adapt this kind of model just for making common sense decisions ourselves. Well, I think so. I think it's been framing the way we're talking. We know from the evolving science now that the pathways of risk are particles from the air or from touching being brought to the face. We choose our PPE on how well it breaks those pathways. When we've talked about maps, we're talking about a pathway from the particles to our nose and mouth, our airways. When we've talked about visors and goggles, we're talking about a pathway to our eyes and how the virus can enter there. When we talk about gloves, hand washing, and gel, we're talking about the pathway of what we touch, but again, bringing it to our face. So if you talk about one pathway at a time, you can make a choice on the best way for you to address that. And that choice will be different if you're in a medical setting, if you're indoors a lot, or if you're outdoors. And so we're looking at that framework. It allows you to break down your choices. When you start talking about choice, my economist's antenna starts picking up uh, because choices depend on the evidence, the external factors, all the things that Sabina covers, but also relates to the individual and the social context in which the individual lives. So some people are risk averse and some people are risk loving. The term risk loving is used in economics. It's probably the only time love enters economics. Anyway, so the people who are risk loving are going to say, well, I can just jog wherever I want and I can run past anybody. I'm all right. I'm healthy. This doesn't hurt me. I'm just popping into the shop for two minutes. What does it matter? And people who are very risk averse are going to maybe not even go out or go out with mask, visor, goggle, gloves, everything. So when you're sort of looking at how people are interpreting all this evidence, you need to look who they are, what kind of tastes, preferences they have. They also obviously have different ability to protect themselves. It could be related to awareness or it could be related to cost. So I was talking to my old aunt in Turkey. I was trying to convince her to wear reusable masks and she said, oh, oh I'm washing them, it's dirty and stuff. And it's also, it's only just a lira to buy a disposable mask. So a lira is something like 10 pence. It's an interesting point you make, but I want to add a couple other dimensions. One is the question of privilege and choice. Some of us are able to work at home and we are only going out when we choose to. Others don't have that privilege and therefore they'll have different choices and considerations there. Also, when we all naively thought that COVID was going to be a temporary blip and we were going to be inside for a couple of weeks, we obtained some disposable masks. In the growing recognition that this is going to be an issue in the foreseeable, there's an argument for building almost a wardrobe of reusable masks that fit different aspects of your lifestyle because we're going to be doing this for a while. My mother-in-law is blind, mostly inside, and thrown off by complicated things. We sent her some disposable masks for the rare occasions when she needs to be outside. I didn't send her something that she has to wash or 
tie or anything that is fussy. So again, you have to consider your lifestyle and your frequency. I expect to be wearing masks in public for quite a while, but not very often. So I have a different basis for my decision than other people might. So I also want to talk about the price of different types of masks, disposable versus uh, reusable. You know, the cheapest you probably have for a disposable mask is 50 pence. Um, you might say 50 pence, but if you go out to work, you'd have to have two, probably one on the way there, one on the way back. And that's a pound a day. Even if you use just one a day for the rest of 2020, that's sort of 150 pounds on a 50p pants, but I think there are actually more expensive, um, they might get more expensive with supply not keeping up, etc. And for reusables, you pay six pounds, you buy two, three, and you wash them. Please wash them with your other clothes. You don't have to boil them. You don't have to tumble dry them. Because if you do all that, then you're also using a lot of energy when you don't need to. You're contributing to other environmental problems. But also, who's producing the disposable masks? Are there labor laws in place? Are they cheap labor? Are they modern slave labor? Um, you know, we're not only concerned about COVID, though that is our most immediate and global risk. We are also concerned about how we treat each other and how we treat our environment. So we need to make decisions weighing up all these three things. Sabina, do I need to wash reusable masks every time I use them? Sometimes I just, you know, I literally walk down to the coffee shop, I put on my mask, I come home, 10 minutes in total. What's the science telling us? Well, first I would say I have not seen definitive advice on this. So we're interpreting what we've heard about the science. And the science is telling us that the virus does not live very long on most surfaces, including cloth, especially if it's out in the sun. And therefore, we have interpreted that to be that unless we're in a very high risk or contaminated environment, as long as you have a couple masks, you probably don't have to wash them every time you use them, unless you have reason to believe that they were very contaminated. Put one aside, and next time you go out, wear another, and then go back to that one. Based on the science, I would think that's a reasonable approach. So how long should I leave it? You know, a day or a few hours? What would be your assessment? I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? We're leaving them for a day. If you look up the research, how long the virus lives on different surfaces, it's not definitive. So I think a day is precautionary you're probably fine after a couple of hours. I mean, you can look at the research that tells you about how to handle your shopping to interpret some of that. They're telling us that after a couple of hours, it's safe to touch things. You know, the science is evolving. So I'd say I leave mine for a day on a windowsill. But if I were in a hospital or something, or if I were exposed in a high-risk environment, I'd be more cautious and I'd wash it. So one, one of the things that's been really apparent and much commented on is the fact that in some parts of the world, and New Zealand, Taiwan, Germany, the virus seems to have been dealt with more effectively than in others. And that the one thing that these 
particular places have in common is female leaders. I just wonder, as a you know, a group of women talking about this subject, whether we have any views? Yes, I have views on this because I've seen this plastered on my Facebook wall for ages in April. Woman leaders, success. And I thought, mm, I'm not that comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with just defining as being woman. I, I want to understand why woman leaders might make a difference, right? So I looked into it. And of course, there is research on this, actually. And there was research on women leaders generally before. And lots of people wrote about it after. So there are, you know, Germany, New Zealand, Taiwan, Iceland, Finland, Denmark, Norway. These are the countries. There are three reasons that female uh, leaders might be different. One is that they have taken early and decisive action. That might be because they are a bit more risk worse than their male counterparts. The second thing is that they have shown more empathy. That's a word that we should really be using more often and understand better. Empathy in the sense that they seem to have cared more about the effects of the pandemic on different types of people. So they tried to make policies that affected everybody. And the third thing is humility. It's this thing of when you get lost, you ask the way rather than drive around and actually listen to different types of advice. These kind of problems are not solved by the evidence from one type of expertise. You need input from different types of research, considerations, lay people, everything. And they seem to have the humility to listen to different voices and different evidence and bring it together to make decisions. I think, Ajay, that is supported by the observation that the least effective management of the virus has been in countries that have very autocratic much of leaders. And I think we can extrapolate that to trying to understand some people that are even refusing to wear masks because they see that as a threat to their autonomy and they're not concerned about the protection of others and they feel that it makes them look weak. There's the toxic masculinity, you know, for want of a term, factor that can be extrapolated. Yeah, I mean, I I would describe it rather differently to you, Sabina, but there's something about, you know, we can look at particular types of leader around the world where they're populist leaders who've wanted to be seen as strong men, a bit blokey as well in some ways, slightly vain, and therefore it's been a threat to their authority to take on some of the advice that, that is going around and also obviously a threat to their potential popularity. They didn't want to be seen to be presiding over a pandemic and so they seem to be in denial for quite a long time, some of them. Mm. And we need to be really careful going forward actually. Is lots of the politicians in any country statements said, I'm just acting upon science, as if science is this one unmovable fixed thing. I think I said it before, it's not. It changes all the time. And at the moment, it changes really rapidly. And an expert is nobody but someone who has a framework like Sabina's source pathway receptor, like mine as an economist, cost-benefit analysis, like any other pathways. We have maps that help us deal with the complex world we're trying to understand. And our understanding changes. And every time it changes, our map, our approach, our compass changes. But I think we're going to need to watch out where 
we realized that we might have had incomplete evidence or we changed advice and the politicians were going to sort of say, hmm, you know, it wasn't my fault. I acted upon evidence and it's all the fault of, you know, nameless, faceless scientists, experts. You know, we've had enough of experts. We heard that one before and I certainly haven't had enough of it. But yes, enough of me ranting about experts. I agree. I must say my opinion on whether the general public should wear masks has changed quite a lot. In my past experience, when my father was in the hospital with cancer and our children were young, we were wearing masks in the hospital to protect my father from any viruses that we might be bringing in from our children And what I understood was that as soon as the masks were saturated with moisture from our breath, they ceased to be very effective. And therefore, a mask that was worn too long was useless. And I also felt that the concern of people touching their faces was greater than other concerns. So a mask doesn't protect you from passing germs across when it's moist, and I thought it was stupid. As we understood that what we're trying to stop is particles moving through the air, I rethought what made sense because we're trying to protect others from the spit that we spray and protect ourselves from those particles. And I've become a strong advocate for masks. Also, we've learned to be more careful about face touching. So as we reevaluated the pathway we were protecting ourselves from, we had to rethink what was an appropriate thing to do. This episode in the middle of this global pandemic has been about trying to get to the bottom of how we can keep ourselves safe in a sustainable way. We've looked at what PPE, personal protective equipment, we might need and what it might do for us. We've looked at how scientists think about source pathways and receptors and how we might apply that in our own everyday lives, looking at Where's the virus coming from? What's the route by which it's traveling to somebody else who may catch the infection and how we might interrupt that? We've looked at the cost-benefit analysis that economists look at. Is it worth buying disposable masks every day for a year or is it more economically rational to buy a reusable mask? How do we wash them? What sort of protection are they giving us? I think in summary, we can say that masks are really good at interrupting the pathway where droplets from our nose and mouth may spray airborne particles that might infect somebody else and will give us some protection from airborne particles that are being sprayed by someone else in a enclosed space. That visors will protect our eyes, but they're probably not going to do quite as much as a mask, so they should be additional. That in general, we could end up creating a horrendous amount of plastic waste through disposables. And while they're very appropriate in a hospital setting, the rest of us should really think about whether we should be using reusables. I think one last thing that we ought to think about is that by contaminating our environment, we create that world in which the development of viruses becomes more prevalent. This is no longer a one in a hundred year event. Already this century, we've had SARS, we've had MERS, and now we've got SARS to, I think, COVID-19. And this is likely to become an ever more common response to how our world and species respond to climate change and environmental degradation. So think about that when you're making the choice between, shall I go disposable or shall I go reusable? 
Thank you for listening. Please get in touch with any issues you'd like us to research for you. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. Thank you to my co-hosts, Sabina and Jill. Thank you to the rest of our team, Caroline Backel, our producer, and Neil McEwen, our composer and sound guy. We all look forward to hearing from you.